This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're talking about what's going on with pensions. It used to be the pensions were the way most Americans save for retirement. That's not the case anymore. To understand why that is and a whole lot more, we're joined by Mike Moran, a pension strategist in Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who's recently come out with some proprietary findings on the pension landscape. Mike, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Jake. Thanks for having me. When we hear the word pensions, what are we actually talking about? Help us understand the pension landscape today between defined benefit, defined contribution, and the rest. When we talk about pensions, I think for a lot of people, when they hear the word pension, they think about their 401k, the defined contribution plan that many individuals have today as part of their employment. What we're really talking about here today are defined benefit plans. And these are plans that used to cover a lot of individuals who worked for companies, as well as sometimes in the governmental sector, where you would work for that employer for a long period of time. And then when you retired, they would send you a monthly check. You'd get $3,000 or $2,000 every month, starting at, let's say, age 65 through the end of your life. So what we're really focused on today is the defined benefit part of the retirement market, and in particular, corporate pension plans. How many Americans roughly get covered today by defined benefit contribution, yeah. uh, defined benefit plans? A lot less than in the past. So when we right. think about it between the public sector and the private sector, on the public sector side, coverage by defined benefit plans is still quite large. When you think about public sector employment, teachers, firefighters, police officers, a lot of them are union-based employees, and that defined benefit plan is covered and protected as part of their collective bargaining agreement. On the corporate side, we have seen a decline in defined benefit coverage, just as more and more employers have what we call closed the plan. In other words, when a new employee joins the company, they're no longer covered by the DB plan, the defined benefit plan. They're covered by the defined contribution plan. We've also seen some companies completely what we call freeze their plan, where even if you still work for the company, you're no longer accruing benefits in that DB plan. So over time in the corporate space, the percentage of employees covered by a DB plan has declined as more and more now find the 401k defined contribution as their really main retirement vehicle. Okay, so you recently put out a report on pensions titled, It Should Be Different This Time. What do you mean by that? When we do a lot of work on the corporate DB space every year, we do an annual analysis where we really take a look at what has changed in the corporate DB space. How have funded levels changed? How has asset allocation changed? What are companies thinking about in terms of contribution policy and so forth? And so when we did our analysis based on the 2017 data, there was some good news. And the good news was that for the first time since 2013, corporate DB plans experienced a year-over-year increase in funded status. The reason why we say it should be different this time is because when we look to prior periods where funded status had risen, such as 2013, or when we look at prior periods when the system was overfunded, for example, 2007, in some of those cases companies didn't really shift their investment policy. As funded status rises, as plans are better funded, many companies employ what's known as a glide path strategy. We're going to change our asset allocation as funded status improves, basically to focus more on matching assets and liabilities. In some of those prior periods, we hadn't seen plans shift their asset allocation. The reason we say it should be different this time is because we think for a variety of reasons, plans will actually now think about better asset liability matching, which is basically saying my liabilities have certain characteristics. And in the corporate pension space, those characteristics are very bond-like. So if I want to find an asset to match that, bonds are going to be the best match. And that would imply reducing equity exposure and increasing fixed income. 
we're obviously in the fixed income space. We're in an environment where the Fed's starting to raise short-term rates, unwinding QE, and there have been some signs of inflation. Maybe not the best time to invest in fixed income, but why do you think corporate pensions are going to be shifting out of equities and into fixed income right now? There's two reasons that we point to. One is the reality that when we think about the corporate-defined benefit landscape, a lot has really changed over the past 10 to 15 years. Many plans are now closed and frozen, so they're not accruing new benefits. The regulatory environment has become much stricter. The number of factors there, the most recent one that I'd say has been really impacting plan behavior, has been increases to the premiums that are charged by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is the quasi-governmental insurer of these plans. So you have a number of factors that are sort of guiding plans to say, we should be increasing our fixed income allocation because it's a better match for our liabilities. In many respects, this is not about an investing decision. This is about a risk management decision. Making sure that the funded status stays Stays, steady. Stays steady, exactly. So what about public pension plans? Do you envision they'll make a similar asset allocation shift like you're forecasting for the corporate pension plans? Or does the fact that they're still open change the calculus? Yes, we do not believe that public pension plans will follow the corporate pension plans in making these similar asset allocation shifts. And there's a variety of reasons. One, as you point out, many public plans are still open and accruing new benefits, so they have a very long time horizon. Their liabilities are still growing from new benefit accruals. The second thing to think about is a lot of those factors that are guiding corporate plans to de-risk, tougher ERISA regulations, higher PBGC premiums, changes in gap financial reporting standards, none of that applies to public DB plans. So they don't operate under the same constraints that many corporate DB plans do. So as we think about over the past number of years, as corporate plans have gone down this de-risking path, we haven't seen public plans follow suit and we don't think they will. Let's take a step back and just think about the broader landscape here. Talk about the history of corporate pensions in the United States after World War II. Certainly, in a post-World War II environment, we saw a real rise in defined benefit pension plans in the corporate space. And some of that was driven by tax. If you think about in a post-World War II era, tax rates were very high. So offering a defined benefit plan and making that contribution and getting that tax deduction was attractive to corporations. So that helped them provide more DB benefits for their employees. You also, in a post-World War II environment, had at some times wage controls. So it limited the ability of companies to increase salary. So increasing pension or offering pension was another way to provide a total compensation package. You also had a number of right GIs coming back from the war. And so as they were going to work and as union membership increased in this country, a defined benefit plan was often part of that union contract. So it really just kind of helped increase the DB coverage during that period of time. So what's led to the decline in corporate plans over the past couple decades? As with many things, there's a number of factors. And one would be a reality that the regulatory environment and the financial reporting environment has become much stricter. We talk about the higher PBGC premiums that companies have to pay. That's increased the cost of the plan, not the benefit, but the cost of actually having the plan. And that's helped to give an incentive for some companies to say, this is too costly, we're not gonna offer this to employees anymore, or we may actually try to shrink our liability. So I would say number one is a stricter regulatory environment. Back up for a second, but the PBGC, you explained it very quickly, but it's a government entity that backs up the pension plans in the event that the company what? company goes bankrupt. The PBGC, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, was created out of the ERISA rules in the 1970s. And it's really the insurer of these plans. And the way they're funded is primarily from premiums that they charge companies, the sponsoring companies. So they collect premiums from companies. 
if a company goes bankrupt and their pension plan is not fully funded, it gets transferred to the PBGC under certain conditions, and the PBGC takes over those assets. They pay the benefits in some respect to employees. That It's not always 100% guaranteed, but it's a way to kind of backstop for companies where their pension goes bust. Got it. You alluded to the Fed rising rates, but we've had a long period of low interest rates. Talk about the effect that that sustained period of low interest rates had on funding for the pensions. The low interest rate environment has really been the biggest factor impacting plans, having them having a low funded status. If you look at the discount rate, the rate that plans use to value their liabilities, since the turn of the century, that rate has declined about 350 basis points. So you think about these liabilities that have very long duration, in some cases, you know, 10 to 15 years. Well, for the discount rate to come down by that much because of low interest rates, that by itself has increased for some of these plans, pension liabilities around 40 to 50%. So the low interest rate environment has really raised the cost of these plans for a lot of companies and has really held those funded levels down. Okay, so put it in context globally, the moves the U.S. corporate plans are making now and will likely continue to make, do they align with what you're seeing from pension systems around the rest of the world? Certainly when we look at Europe, they have been farther ahead in terms of de-risking their pensions versus what we've done here in the United States. So in many ways, yes, the U.S. is just sort of catching up over the last couple of years to trends that we've seen in other developed markets, in particular in Europe. Okay. It all seems very interesting for corporate pension plans. What about our other institutional investing clients like insurance companies, endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth funds? Should they care about these asset allocation shifts that you foresee by the U.S. corporate space? I think the biggest reason why those investors would want to care about it is because as corporate DB plans go down this de-risking path, moving out of equities or other return-seeking assets and going into more long-duration fixed income, which is going to be the best match for their liabilities, what does that mean for the fixed income markets? We've done some work that would indicate that when you look at the $3 trillion of assets in the U.S. corporate DB plans space today, about $600 billion could be moved into long-duration fixed income over the next couple of years. So you kind of have this constant bid at the long end of the corporate credit curve by corporate DB plans. So what does that mean in terms of the ability of long-term rates to rise, and what does that mean for the ability of credit spreads to widen out? As an institutional investor, I'm going to have to take that into account when I think about my investments in that space. So is that part of what's been holding down the yields in the long space, both in the treasury market and the corporate market? Well, certainly, I think corporate DB plans in the U.S. have contributed to that. They are sort of natural buyers at the long end. In many ways, they're agnostic as to the level of rates. Their funded status goes up. They're going to buy long-duration fixed income, almost irrespective of what that rate is at because it's the best match for their liabilities. I think when you extend that to what we just talked about in terms of Europe's going through the same situation, aging demographic, a lot of them are de-risking. There's just a lot of natural buyers at the long end giving the maturation of a lot of these pension systems around the world. Okay, so moving from the higher demand for investment-grade fixed income to the other piece of it, the rotation out of equities, what does that mean if people are reducing equity exposure over the next few years and the scale of hundreds of billions of dollars? Will that have an adverse impact on equity markets or will it be balanced by new money? We don't think it's going to have an impact on the equity market for a variety of reasons. Number one, corporate DB plans have already been reducing equities over the last 10 to 15 years. So we've already seen them be liquidating equities, yet the equity markets around the world have been able to reach new highs recently. 
Number two, because they've been reducing equities, corporate DB plans don't hold as much equities as they did in the past. So their footprint in terms of what they control in the global equity market is not as large as it used to be. The other factor I would say is we don't expect these shifts to happen overnight. And the shifts that we've seen out of equities over the last five to 10 years have been gradual as plans, again, their funded status goes up, they take a little bit of equities off the table, they put more into fixed income. So it's more of a gradual process. And even for plans that are completely closed and frozen, even plans that may be overfunded, you typically don't see these allocations going to zero. Even for the most heavily de-risked plans, there will still be an allocation to what I'll refer to as return-seeking assets, and public equities will play a major role in that. So, Mike, one other big thing that's happened in the corporate landscape and the U.S. landscape recently is that Congress passed a major tax reform legislation and which dramatically lowered rates, cleaned up some loopholes, and shifted burdens around. Is that having an impact on the way people think about pensions? Absolutely. So in the corporate defined benefit space, when companies make a contribution to their plan under certain conditions, it's a tax-deductible event. So when you think about what companies are legally required to put in their plan, the actuaries do their analysis every year, and it's really not one number. It's a range. There's a minimum legal requirement. This is the minimum amount you have to put in, and that's the floor. And then the ceiling is the maximum that you can put in and get a tax deduction. That's a very high number. So there's a range. And in the past, I would say if you talk to a company CFO and said, well, given that range, what's your contribution strategy? How do you think about that? The answer tended to be very simple. It's whatever the minimum is. Cash is king. We use cash for other purposes, buybacks, dividends, capex, and so forth. So we only try to put in what we're legally required to. Well, now for a variety of reasons, and one of them being corporate tax reform, the economics of making a voluntary contribution is a lot greater because I can still, at this point, make a contribution and get it at a 35% tax rate versus the 21 is going to be in the future. Even though those tax rates have already changed, the way it works for the pension landscape is you can make that contribution up to eight and a half months after the end of your fiscal year and still count it towards the previous year. So we've seen a lot of companies making voluntary contributions. There's a lot of examples out there. Companies like UPS, Lockheed Martin have made multi-billion dollar voluntary contributions and they've cited corporate tax reform as one of those reasons. The other aspect of tax reform is the repatriation issue. So many companies, many U.S. multinationals previously had a lot of cash overseas, but it was very uneconomical under the previous tax regime to bring that back to the U.S. So when they were looking to do buybacks or capex, since they couldn't bring that cash back, what did they do? They issued bonds. Even though they had a lot of cash on their balance sheet, they couldn't really use it. They couldn't bring that back to fund their pension either. They couldn't bring it back for anything. They could always bring it back, but the cost of it oh, for the, yeah, tax the tax would the tax be higher. So the effect of lowering the corporate tax rate but leaving a little bit of room for corporations to fund their pension is that companies have a once-in-a-lifetime chance to get the higher rate to duct. So they can make that contribution, and maybe some of the cash overseas is how they're going to fund it. But the other side of it is, what are we thinking about in terms of de-risking? It's going to be meaning plans are looking to increase their fixed income allocations. They're going to go out and buy more bonds. But if I'm a U.S. multinational, now I have greater access to my foreign cash, maybe I don't need to issue as many bonds anymore. So this is potentially what I call the messy handoff. Funded status rises, maybe because interest rates rise and these contribution activity continues. Plans move up their glide path. They say, okay, now I'm going to buy more bonds. But just at that moment, companies stop issuing as many bonds at the long end because they've issued a lot the last few years, as well as the fact that foreign cash is more accessible and it becomes a portfolio construction issue. It's just a lot harder to construct that portfolio to hedge their liability. So you've got a lot of demand coming in during this period and perhaps a little weakening of supply. That's exactly right. So when you look around the world, 
obviously the U.S. system is a fragmented one. You've got the corporate plans that you've talked about that are sort of going away. You've got the 401k, which is around, but sometimes clunky and misunderstood by the consumer or the person. And then you've got these big public plans, which work well, oftentimes for the beneficiaries, but lead to a lot of budget shortfalls and financial engineering at the state level sometimes. When you look around the world, are there places where the system is a little more seamless or more coherent? Well, I think we all often look at a country like Australia with a superannuation fund as something where it solves the problem of coverage. So making sure that everyone has a pension, you still have professional management. And I think to your point, Jake- How does it work though? Well, it's basically a mandatory DC program where you're going to contribute into the plan that's set by law. It's still subject to professional management. So you solve for that problem that many individuals in this country aren't covered by anything. You just laid out this sort of patchwork of retirement systems, corporate DB, public DB, Social Security, but you still have a lot of people who aren't covered by anything. And so we talk about some states stepping in to try to mandate this, but that becomes cumbersome as well, because what if I'm an employer and I have employees in different states? How do I kind of make that mesh with ours? Or I'm a person and I move. And you're a person and you move. So I think the superannuation system is something that many people look at and say, maybe that's where we're going to be at one day. I mean, maybe that solves for this, some sort of national system that's mandatory in nature. When we talk about the decline of pensions, it's very touchy politically sometimes. People get very upset about the fact that the system that you talked about that was put in place after World War II is going away. But there's a lot of good reasons. The job market looks very different than it did after World War II. How do you see that playing out? Well, I think we're going to continue to go more towards what I would call a self-directed retirement model. We've already outlined that in the corporate DB space, a lot of these plans are closed and frozen. Many people are not going to be covered by a defined benefit plan anymore when they begin employment out of college or graduate school or whatever. So many of them are only going to be able to rely on a defined contribution plan that they participate in, and then, of course, Social Security. So I think part of the issue here is that for everybody, it's really up to individuals to understand what their retirement needs are going to be and then make sure that they're saving properly, they're investing properly, they're rebalancing properly. The days of just, I work for a company, I get that pension, and when I retire, I draw on my pension, I draw on my Social Security, and I don't have to worry about it. Those days are over for a lot of individuals. Long gone. How about people entering the workforce today? Right now, for most of them, the option might be a defined contribution plan, a 401k, hopefully with an employer match of some sort. And obviously, There are tax advantages to that. But does that landscape shift as new companies come in with more consultants rather than employees and the like? One of the biggest issues in the retirement system today is the reality that a lot of employees are not covered by any pension plan. We've talked about the decline of defined benefit coverage, but even in defined contribution, a lot of smaller employers don't offer any sort of retirement program for their employees. Part-time employees may not be covered. So that's actually the lack of coverage for individuals is one of the big hurdles to retirement where they may not work for a company that even offers any program at all. That's one of the reasons why we're starting to see some of the states step in and say, we're going to mandate that you offer some type of retirement program because the lack of the ability for some employees to have access to a retirement vehicle is one of the biggest challenges in retirement today. So what does it all mean for Americans in retirement from a personal finance perspective? As Americans have to take more control of their own retirement, are people equipped to do that? Are there the right vehicles to do it? Well, I think it comes back to everyone needs to be more educated about finances and retirement, what their needs are, because again, it's going to be more of a self-directed world. I would also say that it's the three initials. What I would use is ABS, always be saving. So for a lot of employees or younger people who are coming into the workforce, 
and they may have student loans, they're trying to buy a house. It's easy to kind of forget to save for retirement, but the reality is for many of them, it's going to be up to them to do that. Obviously, if their employer does offer a defined contribution program that has an employer employee match, being able to take advantage of that, that's free money that's on the table. So everyone, I think, just has to be smarter about the reality that it's going to be falling on a lot of individuals in terms of saving for retirement, investing the money themselves, and then realizing how long they're going to have to use that money in retirement. In the wake of the financial crisis, obviously, a lot of people are very skeptical about public equity markets, and a lot of them got burned, and we saw a big move into people paying off debt and holding on cash. And the savings rate actually went up, but a lot of times people weren't investing. Do we feel like that's beginning to change now, or do we see any evidence of that? I think you're right. I think for a lot of especially younger people who are new to the workforce but still have that remembrance of the financial crisis, there may be a hesitancy to kind of think about different asset classes like equities. I think this is why if we think about you know a defined contribution program, for a lot of individuals, the best answer is going to be a target day fund. There's been a lot of academic studies that show that returns in defined benefit plans outpace those in defined contribution plans. And part of that is because individuals tend to go in and out of different asset classes. They tend to chase performance. They may not rebalance properly. So I think your point, Jake, for somebody who says, I'm not really comfortable with that, let me go into a target date fund where there's a professional money manager who's doing that asset allocation, who's changing that allocation over time as your factors change, in particular as you age, and who's also rebalancing properly. So it takes that emotion out of it for someone who's maybe not comfortable with different asset classes. And those funds operate more or less the way a defined benefit contribution would have worked in the past, but on an individual level. Yes, on an individual level and in that they're creating that asset allocation for you and that they're changing it for you based on when you're going to retire. Of course, the big difference is there's no guarantee that you're going to outlive your money. That was one of the benefits of the defined benefit system was the longevity insurance. You're going to get that monthly check forever, whether you live to be 80 years old or 120 years old. With a target date fund, it's a pool of money. And when you're retirement age, you have that pool, but there's no guarantee that you're not going to outlive that money. So again, it comes back to the onus is on individuals to really understand how to invest that money, how to save that money, and how to draw down that money in retirement. Another vehicle that was popular with individuals over time was the annuity. Do we see that staying strong or coming back, or is that in favor today? It's interesting because there's actually an intersection of the annuity now in the defined benefit space. You see a lot of companies saying, we have somebody in our plan, we basically owe them an annuity, right? That's what a pension is. We're going to give you a monthly check for the rest of your life. So we certainly see companies going to insurance companies and saying, we're going to buy an annuity for our participants, and that's a way for us to kind of move them out of our plan and get after them under the costs of those PBGC premiums and other costs that are involved with it. So we see a lot of activity on the corporate DB side of companies buying annuities for their participants as a way to move them out of the plan. On the individual side, I think that's going to be an area where it's a potential where some individuals may say that's going to be my new sort of retirement vehicle. But obviously, a lot of those are cumbersome products. They may not be well understood by individuals. So I think it's to be determined as to whether annuities on the individual level play a role going forward. And big corporations, once they've frozen their plans and there's no new money coming in, becomes a little bit non-strategic to run that plan. Do we see them outsourcing the management of those plans? Absolutely. And I think to your point, when everybody was covered by the plan, you'd look out over the floor and you'd see everybody working. They were all accruing rights to the benefit. 
It was part of the company. The where CFO's all these on the plan. The treasurer's Everybody's on the plan. Everybody's there. Now, exactly. to your point, no one's on the plan. And that's why you'll often hear this referred to as a legacy liability. And no one here is earning it. They're really just paying for liabilities that were built up in the past. And from a resources perspective, a lot of companies will say, well, yeah, it's important, but I don't want to devote my treasurer staff or somebody to this. I'd rather just hire someone else to kind of manage it. We're not getting out of the plan. We're not giving up our fiduciary responsibility. But we'd rather not have day-to-day resources on this. We'd rather outsource it to another firm. So I think that's definitely been part of the reason why outsourcing has picked up in the last number of years. All right, Mike, thanks for joining me today. We covered a lot of ground. Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on April 13th. 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.